Hi, I'm Erica Chitty Cohen, and you're listening to This Matters, Conversations on COVID-19. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Loom, a well-being brand that supports women around sexual and reproductive health. This episode is about miscarriage. Navigating a miscarriage during a pandemic bears its own set of challenges. Dr. Erica Cahill joins me to unpack how to know you're having one, when to reach out to your care provider, how the pandemic may impact your care, and the language we use to talk about grief and pregnancy loss. This episode was recorded on May 7th, 2020. Alrighty. Hi, Erica. How are you doing? I'm okay. How are you? <laughs> I am also okay. I mean, as you know, we are in, you know, uncharted waters, yeah. especially as we get ready to kind of roll back um, some, Next of these, phase. Yeah. some of these social distancing guidelines. Yeah, I feel like we've moved into like the next level of uncertainty. We like all got comfortable with the full-on shelter in place and now we're like doing a little dance into uncertainty again. Yeah, I think I think the dance is a good metaphor because you can only dance for so long and then you need to take a break and yes. and, and rest. And like if you want to get good at dancing, you have to like practice. And so I think I like that metaphor of just, we're going to be out and in and, you know, but at the same time, I feel like everybody's going to be navigating this time to their own comfort level. Yeah. And um, I think deciding like whether or not you feel comfortable or safe, you know, is really going to be such a personal decision. I think for some people, they're not going to be making much change between now and when, you know, things, things open up until we're, in a position to have a vaccine um, or a, a really efficacious prophylactic. It's like, yeah. I just don't know. Yeah, there are a lot of unknowns, including the timeline, which is yeah. stressful. Yeah. Is. Well, so diving in, I am so excited to have you here. So excited to have all of you joining us tonight for this conversation about COVID-19 and miscarriage. and. First thing I want to say is if anybody has any questions tonight, we're going to do our best to make time for them at the end. So feel free to put your questions into the Q&A box and we will make sure to pop back over there before we wrap up. But I think before I kind of go into the questions, I would love to have Erica, other Erica, just quickly introduce herself and for those of you who haven't had a chance to listen in or um, be here before. Yeah, uh, sure. So my name is Erica Cahill. I'm an OBGYN. I work and teach at Stanford um, and I'm just so happy to be here again with you today. I love these weekly chats. I know, they're so great. (laughs) Well, I think coming to this topic, I know when we were talking earlier on this week, you know, when we were looking at other parts of sexual reproductive health, those other areas have had very distinct changes around the protocol or the kind of person or patient experience and the provider experience. Miscarriage, on the other hand, hasn't shifted as much, but I still felt that there's so much stigma around miscarriage in our culture, even though it is very common. And I thought it would be helpful to actually 
first thing, just talk about the language around miscarriage and and talk about how important it is to kind of reframe that. Yeah. I think it's a good place to start. Yeah, I think that it's really important when we think about the terminology we use in medicine to think about where it comes from and who created it and like all things, most of it was create, created by white men at this point. Um, and that particularly the language of miscarriage really to me has this feeling of your body has done something wrong and you've like dropped something basically. Um, and so we are, you know, trying to uh, reformat and think about other words. And one of the words that we now use the sort of more prevalent medical terminology is early pregnancy loss or pregnancy loss. Um, and I think when I talk to patients and friends that seems to capture more of the experience um, other words that are sometimes used for miscarriage that really throw people are spontaneous abortion or missed abortion. And I think because abortion, that term also has so much stigma attached to it. I had a patient once whose mother flew from India because we had written on her diagnostic codes, uh, said missed abortion, which, which is another word for miscarriage. But she thought for some reason we were like forcing her to have an abortion or something like that. There was such a miscommunication about that terminology and so it brought up so many things for her so all of those words spontaneous abortion missed abortion miscarriage and early pregnancy loss all mean the same thing which is basically that the a pregnancy is not going to continue to viability um and we can talk a little bit about how we figure that out but i think that's probably also worth touching on because that's a really confusing diagnosis as well and I think it's important to just hold space for that softer language, that idea that this is a pregnancy loss, that this is an ex it's an experience, not just something medical or physiological that's going on in the body. And I think that gives people space to explore what it might look like to grieve, giving themselves permission to move through that process. Yeah. Because I think, you know, when we're really clinging very in a very fixed way to that you know, more medical language, sometimes it doesn't make space for the feelings to come through. So I think as we move through the rest of this conversation, let's really explore utilizing the language of early pregnancy loss or pregnancy loss as we kind of um, explore the different ways that that could potentially manifest in someone's body. And so let's think a little bit about the commonality, like how common is early pregnancy loss or a miscarriage? So it's probably more common even than we think because some of early pregnancy loss goes unnoticed. People will maybe be a few days late for their period, have a really heavy period, unclear if that was the start of a, a pregnancy and then a loss. Um, I get that question all the time. It's really hard to know. Uh, about, but what we sort of identified pregnancy with like a positive pregnancy test or something, a pregnancy loss is about one in four is the best estimate that we have. We know that age increases the rate of miscarriage. So there are different level, different rates of miscarriage depending on your age, it becomes more common the older you get. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's an incredibly common thing, but I find all the time that no matter, I see people with miscarriages at almost every day in my clinic and certainly every week and people, almost everyone feels like they're the only person they know who's had a miscarriage, which is statistically impossible. Um, everyone knows someone who's had a miscarriage. Anyone who's been pregnant more than once most likely has had a miscarriage. It's, it's just so common. Yeah, and I think that commonality and lifting that stigma is so important. And I think 
right now, you know, culturally, there's more and more uh, conversation around that happening. And we'll definitely get into resources where um, folks can go to read up more about that kind of as, a, as we get later into the conversation, because it's one of the questions that came up. But let's talk about the different types of pregnancy loss or miscarriages that can occur in the body, because there, there is a difference. And depending on how early or how late, the process around managing it is different. And if it's a little bit later, it becomes more of a complicated process yeah. or provider supported process, which I think is important to look at given people feeling kind of more resistant potentially to go see their care provider because of wanting to figure out, you know, weighing the risk of infection or exposure. I realized I also just use miscarriage, even as we just talked about it. It's like so easy to like fall back on this word. So yeah, well, yeah. we're modeling the yeah. of, <laughs> of both terms, not to say that miscarriage yeah. has a negative connotation. It doesn't, but I think it's always an opportunity to expand the language. And so yeah, I think it's, it's great to, to I just want to acknowledge that I just said those things together. Yeah. Um, yeah, so in terms of defining early pregnancy loss as a diagnosis, um, before I talk about the actual sort of clinical criteria for that, I just want to say that I would not, I may, I think it's very important to not attach the sort of point of pregnancy at which you are in with the meaningfulness or um, intensity of a miscarriage or an early pregnancy loss because Sometimes people will tell me they talk to family members or support people and they'll say, oh, well, at least you were only in your first trimester or at least you were only six weeks or something. So, it, you know, it's seemingly implying that that's less of a big deal. Um, and so I do want I want to talk about how it is less involved and certainly less provider involved um, if a pregnancy losses earlier, but that, that doesn't necessarily correlate to the, imp the emotional impact, which um, I'd love to talk about more with you. So in terms of the diagnosis of an early pregnancy loss, there are very specific um, ultrasound criteria that we use. And the, that criteria has been developed using thousands and I think potentially millions of ultrasound scans, where they basically looked at what happens, what's the normal ultrasound findings in a normally developing pregnancy and what's sort of the error bar around those points. So what we typically see in a normal pregnancy is around um, you uh, about five weeks, we start to see a gestational sac form in the uterus and that looks like a little bit of uh, fluid collection. Then about a, within a week of that, we typically see a yolk sac, which is the start of the what will eventually be sort of the placental tissue and the support tissue for the pregnancy, and looks like a small little ring on an ultrasound in this in this black sac um, of fluid. And then about a week after we see that yolk sac or that ring, we see an embryo, and that sort of looks like a little dot. Sometimes people have all sorts of names for it, like a little bean or a little. Um, pee, all sorts of things like that. And we can measure that um, to see what's called the crown rump length, which is the crown of the head to the rump or the bum of, of the developing embryo. And then about a week later from that, we expect to see a heartbeat. And that's sort of like the normal flow of things. And, and how many weeks is that between each week yeah. that you're talking about? So around seven or eight weeks, we expect to see a heartbeat, which is why many obstetric practices and many um, OB care providers won't actually see patients until around eight weeks because it can be really uncomfortable and uncertain what the what 
the viability prognosis is of the pregnancy if you have an ultrasound before you can see an embryo with a heartbeat. Once you see an embryo with a heartbeat, the risk of miscarriage or early pregnancy loss actually decreases quite a bit. Like how much should it decrease? It, it depends, depends on the age a little bit, but um, it becomes more like 10% or less once you see an embryo with a heartbeat that looks like a normal heartbeat. Uh, hard to say a little more um, depending on age, but. When you say 10%, once the heartbeat is established, the viability of the, the fetus or, or the, the embryo is around 80%, is that but, what you're Yeah, saying? the likeliness of having a miscarriage decrease, or early pregnancy loss decreases to uh, less, than, less than the 25% that it was when you first found out you had a positive pregnancy test. Uh, but very variable. Um, so yeah, so that's that's sort of the typical flow of things. So when we see people who come in um, with, and we can see a yolk sac on ultrasound, we say, come back a week later, we expect to see an embryo, or come back two weeks later and we expect to see an embryo with a heartbeat. And so there are criteria that if you go a certain number of days from seeing a yolk sac until, usually it's 11 to 14 days, where you don't then see an embryo with a heartbeat, um, then we can, that's defining of an early pregnancy loss. But that means that there's this like one to two week period of time where you just don't know. And I always talk about with patients, there, that's a long time to hold uncertainty when you're trying to move like full body in one direction, like plan your whole life, change your whole life potentially. Well, I um, think what's interesting too is this idea of uncertainty because yeah. we are living in such an uncertain time I think uncertainty has always been there, but during a pandemic, it is very much yeah. present more so than ever before. And so I think it's, I think there's an opportunity here to, within your own uncertainty, to be aware of the wider uncertainty and to maybe find some, some comfort in the fact that, you know, we're all yeah. kind of collectively going through that together. Whereas I do feel in the world pre-pandemic, it can be very easy to feel isolated and alone in your own uncertainty or in your own grief. So if there is anyone who's listening or um, is, is navigating that right now, just knowing that you actually are, are not alone in those kind of particular feelings. Yeah, I love that of sort of connecting it to the greater human experience right now. And I think uh, sort of a version of that that I talk about a lot in clinic is sort of coping strategies for holding uncertainty. I feel like, and I think you and I have talked about this before, I feel like a lot of my role as an OBGYN is helping people hold uncertainty. You know, a whole pregnancy is a holding uncertainty experience. And frankly, as a parent, parenting is also like a never-ending uncertain experience. And so developing sort of your own individual strategies for coping with that uncertainty and holding that um, and the people around you that can help you hold that, I think is really valuable. Um, and I would love to maybe pause for a moment and see but from the from sort of the medical side and see what you how you how you hold uncertainty for people or how you suggest like what are some range of things that people could do to think about how they can hold uncertainty. Well, like I said, I think holding uncertainty kind of pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. Yeah. Or different. Or different because I think people are having to really interact with their feelings in a way that could have been easier to kind of push aside. Yeah. But I think holding uncertainty, maybe one opportunity here would be to share where you are 
coming from. So, you know, again, with the destigmatization around miscarriage, being open to sharing where you are in your pregnancy, even if it's very, very early, mm-hmm. um, having someone beyond, say, your partner or chosen family that you are communicating with in order to kind of share some of that uncertainty or some of that, some of those bigger, more challenging feelings um, with more people in yeah. order to potentially create some more containment around that. Yeah. But I think too, it really depends you know, on where you're at in your, you know, your pregnancy journey for people that have had multiple miscarriages, it can be maybe more challenging to be that vulnerable because of like what they've already experienced. And so, you know, maybe a way to circle back would also be to just go in and kind of explore again, like what are the different kinds of miscarriages? And and, and to your point of saying, you know, not minimizing if it was only a few weeks or if it was, you know, versus later term, mm-hmm. understanding that, you know, a loss is a loss and should be allowed its own space um, to, you know, to, for yeah. mourning and for, and, and for processing. So could you take us through kind of the yeah. kind of early yeah. versus the later? Sure. So always with an early pregnancy loss, there are three main ways of managing. And um, as you said, there's a little bit of a difference in terms of the recommendations, depending on the type of early pregnancy loss and and mostly your symptoms, frankly. Um, So one of the, and I'll sort of talk a little bit through that. So the first option is always to sort of wait and see if your body will pass the pregnancy tissue by itself. Um, This, eventually most people do pass pregnancy tissue, um, but it can take weeks to even months for this to happen. And during that time, people are having irregular bleeding, they're having cramping, things like that. Some people, whenever I counsel people about this option, I always talk about there are some people that would really not like to have any intervention, that they would rather just like be in tune to their bodies, see what happens. And what I recommend with that method is that you're just checking in with a care provider regularly. And usually I see people every week or two weeks to just make sure that they're not bleeding too heavily, that they're not too uncomfortable, that nothing has changed. Um, there's no signs of infection, things like that. But there's there's actually very low risk of infection with managing a miscarriage without any intervention. The most, the downsides are really the continued bleeding and cramping. The second option is to manage with, with medication. And similar to our talk last week where we talked about the medical management of abortion or, or an intentional interruption of a pregnancy, there actually we use the same two medications. So we use a medication called mifepristone that is a pill you take by mouth um, that sort of sensitizes the uterus to the next medication called misoprostol, um, which causes sort of the uterus to cramp and pass sort of pass the pregnancy tissue, kind of speeds up the process. Um, some people like that option because it still feels less invasive. People can do that mostly at home. Um, and But it's still like the bleeding is a little bit more predictable because most people tend to have bleeding about half an hour to four hours after they take that second medication. The bleeding lasts for a few hours um, and then really tapers off. That's, that's how that management should go. The, the sort of final or most invasive option is to have a procedure where the pregnancy tissue is, is suctioned out or removed and that's called a suction dilation and curatage. Um, and that, that's the same procedure for that we, um, we do for our first trimester abortion as well. And so it's an incredibly common procedure that we do all the time in gynecology. It's a procedure that we typically do in an outpatient clinic. Um, we don't usually use sharp instruments 
at this point. We used to. The curatage part sounds scary, I think, but um, we usually use a straw that kind of looks like a, I always tell like like a star, Starbucks straw when Starbucks used to have straws um, to remove the pregnancy tissue that way. And so I think we go into one of the questions that came in that was about late pregnancy loss or, or a late term miscarriage. That, that process looks very different. And yeah. I think it'd be really important to kind of talk a little bit about that experience. Yeah. And, um, and for those who, you know, may be facing that, especially during uh, COVID-19, can you speak a little bit to what a late-term yeah. pregnancy loss looks like? Yeah, so I think there's sort of, like all things pregnancy, there's a huge spectrum, right? There's these lines that we've drawn on the trimesters, but there's, there's not so much of a difference between 12 weeks and 14 weeks, but we've decided, like, the line for the end of the first trimester is somewhere between 13 and 14 weeks. And then same thing with the line for the third trimester. And so um, we, but but mostly we manage things pretty similarly, um, but on sort of on a spectrum. So um, sometimes we can do the the suction, dilation, and curatage procedure through the second trimester even. Um, but sometimes that's it becomes a slightly different procedure where we end up needing to have the cervix be more open and use different instruments to remove pregnancy tissue. Um, or we people will actually induce labor. That's the other option for a, a pregnancy loss that's further along. Um, those are much more rare, and so we do a lot more investigating about why those happen. For a first trimester pregnancy loss, there the recommendation is not to do any sort of investigation for why this it happened until so, unless someone has three pregnancy losses in a row. Um, and the reason for that is because it's mostly turns up nothing because miscarriage and early pregnancy loss is just so common. Um, but with a later, a second trimester, or certainly a third trimester um, pregnancy loss, there we lo really look for a reason. And also to kind of build in a question that came through, is there any suggested blood work to ask your doctor for post a miscarriage? Yeah, so for an early pregnancy loss in the first trimester, we typically will check blood type and sometimes we'll check a hemoglobin or a blood count um, to look for sort of your starting starting um, blood level because we anticipate with a pregnancy loss, no matter which method you choose, you'll have some blood loss. Pregnancies, anytime a pregnancy ends in whatever manner, there's always some blood loss, but the body is designed to adapt to some of that. Um, but someone who's already very, very severely anemic, we may recommend more of a controlled setting um, for having that blood loss happen. And, it, and it's okay to ask your care provider for blood work, even if it's not something that they think is necessary, if it's something that you specifically would like to have more information on. I think that it's really important to get to have a conversation about other blood work. So beyond your blood type and your blood count, there the workup that we do for recurrent pregnancy loss or this three or more early pregnancy losses without um, without any nor pregnancies that develop normally in between is does include blood work, um, looking for problems with clotting disorders, um, and sometimes it also includes a genetic analysis of you or your partner. The, I think it's important to know what you're looking for with those tests. And if though if you haven't, those tests have sort of been validated for people who have had three pregnancy losses or more. 
And so they have, we don't really know what the meaning is in people who have had just one pregnancy loss. That said, particularly for people who are older and, and having multiple early pregnancy losses or are really concerned um, and are sort of, we've talked about this, there are people that are just like the more data people, more information is better people. Sometimes I'll talk about that and say like, here's the limitations of these labs. We can get them if you want to, um, but we have to interpret them carefully. Because it doesn't necessarily mean whatever you're reading on the internet because it's, it's different. And so before I go into the last two questions that came in, I just want to go back to the discussion of inducing labor for a late-term miscarriage or late-term yeah. pregnancy loss. That procedure is called a D&E, correct? A dilation and evacuation. Is that is that correct? So it's separate, actually. One is inducing a labor that you basically will expel the tissue um, yourself, like a, like a delivery. Um, and the other one is more like the dilation curatage where you're asleep and you, the pregnancy or asleep or sedated and the pregnancy tissue is removed from you. And that's the dilation evacuation. And with the uh, inducing of labor, that component, that's something that actually has to take place inside the hospital. That's not an outpatient procedure. Not an, out, not an outpatient procedure. Um, and sometimes can be long, sometimes can be, you know, day, a day or two. Um, and usually people are on labor and delivery um, because that's where we're used to monitoring people, but there are places where it's in different parts of the hospital. Yeah, felt like it was important to just look at that a little yeah. bit more just given the fact that it, it would require the person yeah. and to go into the hospital and maybe have a support person or not, depending on yeah. what it looks like. So I think just keeping that in mind um, for those who might have the you know, misfortune of having to experience a late-term pregnancy. Yeah, and that actually, that reminds me of saying one thing that I think is really important is uh, reasons to go to the emergency department if you think you're having an early pregnancy loss or really there are, my takeaway is there are very few reasons to go to the emergency department if you think you're having an early pregnancy loss. There's nothing we can do to prevent a pregnancy loss. That's very important. Um, there's no medication we can give you. There's no surgery we can do, um, a pregnancy loss in the first trimester is something that happens or doesn't happen, but there's nothing in the emergency department that will intervene in a way to stop it from happening. And particularly right now, as people are trying to avoid the emergency department, um, I think that's a really important message that if you're having bleeding in a pregnancy, call, call, call your doctor, um, call urgent care, but try to avoid the emergency department because they're, unless you're bleeding so heavily that you're concerned you're losing too much blood. That would be the reason to go to the emergency and, and things to talk about with your doctor. And how, and in terms of identifying if one is bleeding more than is usual, you're saying that is something to review with their care provider? Yep. And our basic guideline is if you are soaking through two pads an hour, that's what we typically say is the amount of blood loss for more than two hours. So more than two pads an hour for more for two or more hours, or if you're starting to feel dizzy, that's and that, that's one of the first signs that people have lost a lot of time. Yeah. And then thinking about bleeding, one of our last questions here, any ideas around how to heal your body after a miscarriage? Yeah, so I think, um, I can talk a little bit about the body healing and then I'd love to hear your sort of maybe maybe final thoughts on the, the more emotional healing, which I think is probably the more um, intensive healing that happens after a pregnancy loss. The body, as we talked about in our last um, talk about uh, induced abortion, 
that the body is really designed to recover really well after a pregnancy. In all of these ways of managing, there's no stitches, there's no, there's no cutting or incisions. Um, the uterus is designed to be pregnant, not be pregnant, and recover. And so most people tend to do very well. There is, we sometimes have follow-up visits. We sometimes don't have follow-up visits if people are asymptomatic. So physically, people recover very well. And then a question I get also about recovery is when is it safe to try again? And I, we've done studies to look at, is there any difference in terms of, are you more likely to have another pregnancy lost if you sort of try too soon? And that doesn't seem true at all. Are you less likely to get pregnant if you try too soon? That doesn't seem true at all either. So I always tell people, whenever you're ready, most people have another ovulation about two to four weeks later after a pregnancy loss or after a pregnancy ends. And so as soon as you feel emotionally ready, that said, um, uh, I think that is super variable for people. And, I, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on that process and support for that process. I think everything that you shared feels in alignment in terms of, you know, what I would share with a client or share with a friend. I, I think it's all about figuring out what is the most gentle approach for you and also understanding if you are at the very beginning of your kind of conception journey and this is the first miscarriage, then maybe more space is needed to just kind of pull back and think, okay, you know, is this something I need more time for before jumping back in? Or you might think, let's just keep going and keep and keep moving, which I think is a totally normal and you know, and healthy response to have as well. It doesn't negate what just happened, but it also, you know, allows you to, you know, give yourself permission to to keep going. Yeah. And then on the other side, you know, if this is, you know, your fifth or sixth miscarriage, you know, I think that again, just giving yourself the right size amount of space to grieve and to process whatever that needs to look like especially if you're trying without assistance you know versus trying with assistance i think these are also other things to kind of put into the framework whether there is the ability to just get get up and start going again or it's waiting for another cycle and it's going through all these different pieces and so i think the kind of overarching advice on my end is just gentleness, really tuning into your, your physical body and understanding how your body is actually feeling and, and understanding if you actually have the physical and emotional strength to go through that next step, especially in the context of a pandemic. I yeah. think we've got so many external pieces um, amplifying what is typically already a, you know, an intense process for lack of a better word. Yeah. So I think space, gentleness, and real attunement to the physical body and really checking in with what your bandwidth looks like is, 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 is so important. And then, you know, if you have any kind of, you know, rituals or spiritual practices, whether it's journaling or meditating um, or, or walking in places that you feel comfortable or processing with friends or with your partner or chosen family, those are also going to be outlets to help gauge. Because sometimes that, that externalizing what's going on and, and getting feedback can help you get a better framework 
um, you know, on what's going on with you and kind of co-regulating with someone else around it, especially again in the pandemic where it can be very easy to um, get a little myopic and not really be able to see our whole narrative at once. So I feel like that's such good advice for coping with the pandemic, actually. Like everything you just said is just like be gentle with yourself, take stock of your physical body, like think about the strategies that work for you. Um, but it's so true, right? Like there, this is a tender time. And I think it lets us really connect pregnancy loss to the greater human experience. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, again, I think what I've loved about these conversations over the past couple of weeks is I think we are trying to provide information, but at the same time also model, I don't know, there's so much that we don't know, but we still have, we still have our brains, we still have our bodies for those of us who are not um, sick. And so I think just remembering that that resource is there and allowing yourself or giving yourself permission to, uh, to tune into that when when the noise is a little less distracting, um, I think is really, really helpful. Yeah, I've never been so grateful or aware of my ability to take deep breaths, I think. Oh, no. Like, I just feel so grateful every time. Yeah, yeah. Well, with that, I want to say thank you so much for your time and your knowledge and for sharing the space with with all of us. And there's so much to come. We're really at the beginning of all of this. And I'm really happy to have you in our Loom family to just continue to walk through this, this process and this time. Yeah, I'm so happy to be holding uncertainty with you. Me too. Thanks, Erica. Yeah, thanks, Erica. Bye. Bye. Thanks for coming, everyone. Thank you for listening. As always, if you have questions or feedback for us, head over to our Instagram, we're at LoomHQ, and send us a DM. If you'd like to hear more from Dr. Erica Cahill, you can find her on Instagram at Dr. Erica Cahill or on Twitter at the same handle. Next week, we'll be wrapping up our series and talking about sex and the pandemic. I'm really excited to have my friend, Dr. Emily Nagoski, author of the best-selling book, Come As You Are, to join me to talk about what the pandemic is doing to how we are experiencing and understanding intimacy in our lives. Until then, stay safe, stay gentle, and take care of yourself. And oh, you can find me on Instagram at Erica Chitty Cohen.